So today I'm talking to Professor Graham Turner uh, in regards to his new book, uh, Essays in Media and Cultural Studies in Transition, which is a, a fantastic collection of pieces that draws from Graham's work over the past decade. And I wondered if you could start, Graham, by uh, looking back at, at that period and looking at the book itself and the rationale and telling us why you did this project now and what you think we should be looking at going forward. Well, it, um, it is a period of great transition for media studies. I mean, it, it starts out when we're still in the, in the, uh, the heyday of the digital optimist and, and people predicting what was going to happen out of, uh, out of social media in particular, but, you know, it, predicting what would happen out of the digital era. And so I wrote a whole bunch of pieces during that period that came out in chapters in books uh, edited by other people or in, in journals. And, um, and in many ways, they were responding to the context at the time. So there is a, there is a kind of narrative of developing arguments and developing critique. But it is what I'd call a B-sides collection. It's a collection of stuff that didn't come out as an A-side aimed at the hit parade. And so it just seemed a good idea to pull them together because there was, there was a sense of coherence there. And so I framed it with a piece at the beginning and a piece at the end. The piece at the beginning is trying to set up a narrative of the context from which these pieces came. And the piece at the end is saying, well, what do we do now? And I think in particular, it, it tries to argue that there's a particular challenge for uh, a very critical model of media studies that I'm suggesting has tended to be uh, downplayed in recent years, mainly because we've spent so, so much time trying to play catch up with the changes and developments in the industry and trying to understand what's happening um, the time for criticism was, was, was limited and I think that's one of the reasons we're looking at, at uh, the kind of social media landscape we've got and the, the, the broadcast media landscape that we've got at the moment. So you see the digital as being part of the catalyst for some of the transitions that we're talking about? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, part, I mean obviously technologically it's, it's a major shift but also I think that it created a kind of problem for media studies in that it was such a major shift. The focus was on that and uh, less of a focus on history. You know, there are lots of things that didn't change and lots of things that were the same. And there are lots of lessons from media history that we might have remembered. But I think people got a little excited. And I think they forgot, you know, what, what the politics of, of the media industries needs to be and how we think about the way media operates with power. I remember when I... When I started talking about the demotic turn, and there's some pieces in there that come from that period, and, and arguing and, and posing that against the democratisation thesis, there were, there were plenty of people who argued with me and said, well, what's the difference? And I, you know, I just thought that was politically illiterate to ask that question and surprising. And it, it, to me, it indicated that something had, had disappeared out of media studies that it needed to come back. A number of the essays here express an urgent need to re-engage with the concepts of media power uh, and the public interest. But how would you characterise that, that debate now, especially at a moment when public interest seems to have suddenly triumphed? Yeah, I look, I must admit I'm, I'm a little sceptical about that triumph. I mean, I think, you know, in, in moments of crisis, people do go back to uh, state-funded media uh, because they can trust it and because it tends to be available in ways that commercial media is not. And it doesn't get bored and move on as, as the ratings change. And so it's understandable and, and good that people are turning to, uh, in, in our case in Australia, to the ABC for information, not just about the coronavirus, but we saw it as, as well with the bushfires. 
And one of the pieces in, in the book actually talks about the way in which that happened around the floods in, in, uh, in Brisbane in 2011, where suddenly, I argue, you know, television remembered what it's for. <laughs> and, and so I think there are moments when the public interest imperative is, is recognised and, and, and so on, but it doesn't seem to have had much effect on policy. And, um, you know, it would hard, be hard, for instance, to see governments change of either colour changing their mind about whether they should fund uh, the ABC better or whether there should be uh, subventions for public interest journalism. You know, there are plenty of examples of that around the world, so I'm not, I'm not lacking completely in any hope, but I do think that the moments of crisis tell you what the potential are, it might be, but they don't necessarily generate a commitment to the public interest from... Uh, political parties. I mean, that was a thought also that I had because, you know, you turn your attention in one section of the book to the, the enduring role of the state and the nation state, state in particular, in defining and guaranteeing public interest functions of media or the public good. But is that always, is that an ideal notion of the state compared to what actual governments have been doing in regards to the media? Yeah, it's a fair question because you know it. it what actually happens is a long way from that ideal, I guess. But my argument about the nation and the importance of the nation, this, and this goes back, you know, 40, 50 years now, has always been a pragmatic one as well as a nationalist one, I suppose, in that the framework within which those kind of subventions have to be made are within the policy structures of the state. You know, that's where that's going to change. And so, you know, the arguments that we know we're all now globalised and that doesn't matter, I never bought that. And I still don't buy that, and it looks pretty. That argument looks pretty threadbare at the moment, too. So the argument is really saying that the action that needs to be taken is, in the first instance, at the local or regional level, but probably most importantly at the level of the state, and that's where the nation becomes crucial. And and it's possible also, I suppose, to argue for cultural policy interventions on the basis of what we call nationing in another book that David Rowan, Emma Waterton and I edited, where the, the process of, of using policy as an explicit mechanism for the, production, for the, for the construction of the culture. Um, you know, that, that's something that uh, has ebbed and flowed over the last 30, 40 years in Australia, but it does seem to me that it does have positive potential and there are plenty of places you can look at around the world where that's been applied to the media. You know, France has been doing public subventions for quality journalism since the 70s. Um, and, and it's produced a, a nation that actually does read newspapers for information. So, it, you know, it, it's always difficult, you know, the, the political support for the idea of the nation within our fields of study uh, is not strong because the the regressive potential of, of the nation and of nationalist policies is, is enormous. You know, we're looking at that happening in the US right now. You know, that's the white nationalism there is, is, is skewing politics in a very dangerous direction in all kinds of, of ways. And so I've never been naive about that potential, but it does seem to me that, that the nation still remains a kind of crucial ground for action and, and criticism if you want to actually change the way things are. I think given the, the gathering momentum of post-globalisation politics, I mean, there is at least a danger that the resurgence of the nation-state could drive us into a regressive cultural politics. Yeah, I think that's true. 
again, the US is, is an example of that. I mean, to, I suppose to some extent we can we can we can kind of catastrophize Trump and, and see him as a symptom of something much longer lasting, and it may turn out that that's not the case. But it's certainly um, it's certainly clear that the whatever world order had been in place amongst Western nations anyway is now seriously threatened by Trump. I mean, I think in media studies over many, many years, we've seen the kind of an ebb and flow between the criticism of power and the state, uh, criticism of media power and the market, yeah. the market supplanting the state for many years as the kind of monolithic locus of, of power. But media and communications academics, many of them, of course, have endorsed the power to the people principle over that time. And I think, you know, referring back to your work on the demotic, we're also facing a period in which, if you like, the grassroots has become a kind of wellspring of this kind of politics as well. So how do, how do we then steer ourselves in, in media studies uh, beyond the kind of utopian principle um, uh, of the grassroots? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I think it's, it's actually, it's actually quite, quite difficult. Well, there are a whole range of, of, of difficulties. One is that the status of media studies as a mode of critique and, and so on varies tremendously around the world. Uh, in Australia, we're relatively well placed. In the UK, they're not. Um, in places like Mexico, for instance, there's a anthropology does what media studies does. And so the, the, the kind of contextual location of, of these disciplines varies significantly. But I think it's been very hard for media studies to, to work at the grassroots in terms of political action around newspapers or public interest journalism and so on without being able to get access to government cultural policy uh, ministries. And where that's been possible, I think we have seen uh, some change. And again, you know, in, in France, that was what happened there in the 70s. And you can see it happening uh, to some extent actually in New Zealand, but you can also see it a lot of this in some of the Scandinavian countries. And so one of the problems I think is, is, is the sense that I've had to contest in a way that um, dealing with government or dealing with policy institutions is in some way a kind of cop out, you know, that you're actually, um, that's not where politics really is. Well, in this case, I don't think politics is confined to one location, but if you really want to make, make change, you do have to get in some of those doors and, and, and argue for, for explicit shifts in the policy formations that are creating the conditions within which the media operate. We haven't had a great deal of success in that in, in recent years. I, mean, I think we did have uh, previously, but I don't think we have had much success in that way. And really, you know, conservative governments are never interested in policy. Uh, progressive governments are. And so it's very difficult to make a policy argument, I think, when you look at, at um, the kind of work that, that Peter Grester is doing and his, the, the Alliance for Journalistic Freedom. They're a terrifically interesting group of people. They've got support from right across the media, but they're really not getting much traction with government because all the government has to do is wait and eventually they'll shut up. Another trope in the book draws on your work on celebrity, which in many ways was prescient of the media era that we've been kind of living through. And many of those arguments are still very cogent, you know, even prior to the expansion of kind of influencer culture uh, and micro-celebrities of, of all kinds. 
And it's striking actually in the last month uh, how much the, the, the celebrities seem to have disappeared from the airwaves and you realize just yeah. how much bandwidth they were occupying. But what are the lessons do you think uh, to be taken uh, from that when we think about the future of television and, and the press? Well, again, you know, you wonder what's going to happen afterwards, you know, that, that yes, I think celebrities have suddenly, you know, everybody suddenly realised actually they're not all that important and maybe we need to be listening to the chief medical officer <laughs> instead of Kim Kardashian. But I think it's, um, it's never been about, you know, how really important they are. It's, it's partly that, that they're, I think it's partly their incredible availability that makes them so attractive. And, um, and, and the fact that they are so widely disseminated and so, so easily accessible is part of their appeal, I think. So at the moment, nobody really cares less about what celebrities have to say um, on almost anything. There's this wonderful interview with one of the football managers in, in the UK when they, he was being asked what he thought about the coronavirus. And he said, why would you ask me? I'm a football manager. Ask somebody who actually knows something about this issue. Ask an expert. Don't ask just... Just because I'm famous doesn't mean I know any of this stuff. So that you know, that's that's a great lesson to keep presenting. But I don't think, as well, put it this way: as long as celebrity remains a really crucial uh, part of the market, for particularly for mass media, but also for social media, you know, they'll they'll be out there. I think we're stuck with them for quite a while. But it may well be that people will be a little more circumspect about attributing influence and importance to them over the next little while. I mean, it, I'm always really ambivalent. I got into to working on celebrity because I was interested in the production of celebrity. I re, I'm not at all interested in celebrities themselves at all. And, but what I was interested in was the way celebrity was kind of reconfiguring media markets. And, you know, initially I was looking at what had happened in, in magazines and then on television. So I was interested in, in how they affected production. And so I've found myself in this position now where I do still write occasionally on celebrity. I don't do much anymore. You know, I have an interest in it. My interest in it, it's not like my interest in television, which is, you know, I'm as much a fan of television and a consumer of television as anybody, but I'm not a consumer of celebrity. And most of what I see in celebrity brings out, you know, the kind of Frankfurt School <laughs> response in me. And I, I think, my God, how much time are we wasting on this? So... You know, maybe to some extent I'm, I'm masquerading as somebody who works in celebrity studies, but I'm very critical of what that's done to the media and to uh, the range of, of product we have available to consume. Thinking back to the football manager example and, and the question of experts, which of course had varying fortunes over, over the past yeah. decade, how well do you think universities are positioned you know, under their current mandates? You know, to lead dialogues about truth and trust emerging around the media, which have social and cultural resonance, as opposed to the more narrow sort of vocational outlook that's being prescribed in education policy. Yeah, I mean, I think they've been thrown a bit of a lifeline lately, actually, like because the need for expertise around the, the virus is, is so urgent and there is so, so little known outside. They've had really the media and government have had no recourse but to go to people who've got scientific expertise. So I think that's rescued the university sector to some extent uh, from really the reconfiguration of what they think of as what they do 
uh, from being an educational institution to being a training institution. And I think really the, edu the university sector, certainly in Australia, has gradually renounced the kind of public interest role. You know, it's very rare to have them talk about uh, university education as, a, as intrinsically a public good. You know, they'll talk about it in vocational terms, in training terms. But the idea of an education as being something that a civilised country wants its, its citizens to have uh, to the highest possible level that they, that they, you know, that they're equipped for, you know, that idea is kind of gone. And I think the universities uh, really have lost a lot of credibility over the last decade or two as they've struggled to, uh, I think, too hard to adapt to the government's commercialisation model of what they should have, of, of seeing themselves as businesses. They should have pushed back against that much harder, much earlier, and said, we're not a business, we're a public good. And I suppose for us in, in media and cultural studies, have been, have been part of that because we were a beneficiary of, of a sort of vocational training. Yeah, that's true. Um, programs, while at the same time, also being subject to kind of um, ideological attacks in different parts of the world uh, you know, as a serious and worthy academic uh, endeavour. And there's been a growing disconnect, it seems, also between media studies, which you talk about in the book, and other critical disciplines. And is, that, is all of that because the kind of critical approaches that you're talking about have become too easily associated with ideological skirmishes? Yeah, I think we lost that battle quite some time ago. The criticism was, it, was itself, particularly coming from a humanities or social science basis, was too easily dismissed as opinion and, and motivated opinion. We were then in competition with other opinion makers, politicians, journalists, etc., but without the public platform that they had. And often the explanation of what we do and why we do it is more complex and can be summed up in a couple of words. And, you know, we find that when we do interviews with journalists, they get impatient when we have a sentence with more than three clauses in it. And it's, it's very hard to, to defend that process. So I think that, you know, critical disciplines of all kinds have found it difficult to thrive in a situation where education has been instrumentalised to the extent that it has. But at the same time, you know, we're going into a period now where people are more dependent upon media than ever. They're spending more time doing more yeah. things through media than ever. That's going to go on for an extended period. So you would think that the concerns and the expertise in media studies would be crucial in thinking about how the world is going to look one year or five years ahead. I mean, how, how can that case be made most effectively? Well, we're not in a great position to make it at the moment because we don't know enough about how people actually uh, interact with that new media context. We don't know how they make their choices. We don't know how it's assimilated into the practices of everyday life. I mean, we, this is a big gap in our, in our field. That we, know that we know a lot about how the industry has changed. We don't know a lot about how, how consumers' interaction or audiences' interaction with those industries has changed. And I suspect once we do know that, you know, that information will be valuable, uh, not just to the community, but to the industry and to, and to government. But there's going to be, well, we need a lot of research before we're in that position. You know, I think I say in the book somewhere that, that we, we, knew, we knew far more about television, for instance, than we, back then than we know now, because things have changed so much. And it's going to be, it's going to take a while of, of empirical research, not not just theorising, to learn what we need to know to be able to say sensible things about how 
how culture is actually constructed via media or via mediatisation. I mean, that's something I wanted to draw on as well, because apart from media studies, you also talk about cultural studies in, in this book and, and the classic kind of cultural studies approach from its kind of origins. I mean, it seems to me that there is an awful lot of information now available in the form of data about audiences, you know, as, yeah, as users, true. as data points, as click trials. But very little understanding of the meanings made by audiences or the kind of media worlds that they inhabit from their perspective. So it seems to me that there is an urgent need to rethink the kind of humanities approach to the audience, which is, you know, which is more expensive and harder and more time-consuming work to do. So you can understand why it's simpler to follow industry data, automatic data collection, and try and work from that. But it seems yeah. to me there's a danger in doing so. No, I think that's absolutely right. And in many ways, you know, researchers of, of my generation, you know, we, we, we came to this with a range of skills, but we don't have the range of skills you need to do the kind of data analytics that you're talking about. And we're not likely to develop them. You know, it's, it's probably your generation of scholars that are the ones that have the capacity to lead that. And, and that's what needs to be done. You know, it, it's a different discipline now because it's dealing with different, different kinds of business models. You know, the commodification of data has changed everything really about what media studies needs to focus on. Now, people in, such as me can, can draw on what, on what is published in that area, but we're not going to, we're not going to be able, actually, to go out and do the research independently ourselves. We're going to have to work in teams and we're going to have to listen to people who know more about this than, than we do. And that does seem to be happening. You know, I think that does seem to be happening. But, you know, it's very difficult because so much of this information is commercial in content or it's kept behind walls, you know, trying to find out how many people watch Netflix and what they watch, you know, good luck with that. But clearly, you know, if we want to understand what's going on, that's a really important part of the of the landscape that we need to understand, and it's it's in our interest to understand it, but it's not in Netflix's interest to tell us. Well, is there not a recognition, do you think, on the industry side um, that they do need people who are able to kind of see see through the pile of data and do some kind of analysis that's meaningful? Yeah, I think there is, but it's, yes, I, I think there is, and I think that when you talk to people in the industry they do express that concern, but it's hard to see where the money to do it is going to come from because the industry itself is not going to fund it. Um, and government, you know, we've got our small grant program through the ARC and so on that you can go to, but there's so much work that needs to be done and it's hard to see how, I mean, particularly now, you know, we, under the kind of constraints we're going to face into the next four or five years, it's hard to see how much money will be invested into these areas. And what I'm concerned too about how successful applications within media and cultural studies have been in the ARC in, in recent years. There has been a drop in that and, and that has an effect on what, what gets done, what people can afford to do. I mean, I think perhaps the sheer volume of media that, that's available has generated some complacency as well as yeah. complexity. In terms of, I think your book, you know, seems to suggest there is a danger the media could fail us, you know, without a, that kind of body of kind of critical uh, knowledge being applied early on. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, and in many ways, uh, you know, they're probably not failing us now, but shortly before, <laughs> they probably were. And I, I think one of the, well, I'll give you an example of the kind of thing that I would, I would point to the way, you know, you hear all kinds of discussions about 
the way politics has been played out in recent years via slogans and, and you know, pure ideological battles, etc. And to some extent, it's the media's fault that that's been allowed to happen. They haven't bothered to do the research. They've, they've played the game of reporting conflict as a sport, political conflict as a, as a sport, rather than as an area of policy. And, you know, and now they're complaining that, you know, for instance, they complain about the privacy laws and the way in which they've been slowly introduced under border security remits and saying that they've gone too far. And yet you think when those things were introduced, it was you know, the headlines in The Australian and so on were attacking people who raised concerns as being kind of civil liberty, liberty greenies and so on. They never bothered to look carefully at what would happen. They never bothered to scrutinise them because all they wanted to do was to support the coalition government and make Labor look like idiots. And so they've done that. Now they're in a position they have only themselves to blame for and they're whining about it. They should have been standing up and scrutinising legislation properly all the time and they never did. And so now they've suddenly realised that there are implications for their industry that they didn't pick up because they were too busy playing the political game uh, in what they did in their reporting. And it makes me wonder about the about the compression of the attention span there. I mean, I think if we look back to the early years of work on, on the digital media, for example, my, many of the tendencies that we're now so concerned about in terms of surveillance, accountability, concentration, were all really flagged in the late 1990s by people who, who, who could think forward. And yet that yeah. doesn't seem to have made a huge difference in, in stopping those things from unfolding. And so when you talk about the future of a critical agenda, you know, how do we, what is the best way to convince people that a critical approach is about anticipating the future? It's not just about knocking things down. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Well, I, I think, you know, moments like these are probably moments when that can be done. That, uh, that you know, reminding people of the importance of, of listening to advice. And I think there is a bit of that going on, actually. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a really great book that Michael Lewis wrote, which was about the way... It was, it was, in a sense, a book to try and convince Americans of the importance of government. You know, sometimes a tricky thing to do. And it, all he did was just go through uh, what Trump did when he took power and, and didn't uh, install a bureaucracy. He didn't reappoint, he didn't appoint people to important um, instrumentalities and, and they affected the environment and health and so on. And what, what Lewis does is just go through those organisations and show what the effect of that has been on the ground. And it, although he never actually says it in the book, it's about this is why you need government. And it does seem to me that these, you know, what we're looking now is, is an opportunity. And to be fair, the press in particular are taking this opportunity to say, we got it wrong. You know, this, this, we do need to have a decent uh, structure provided by government to protect the national interests and to pr protect everybody. Uh, equally, etc. So there is, you know, there is, there are moments like this. I think when that can be said, and I think there were similar, um, similar things happened during the bushfire crisis as well. So I guess it's it's a matter of people uh, working in our fields, taking advantage of that and trying to get their heads on on television and trying to get their their op eds um, in the newspapers because you have to seize these moments because they're not going to be routinely available. Also, and we've talked a lot about the Australian context, but much of the work that you refer to in the book is really global in nature. 
you know, you're talking about many different parts of the world where these research projects have touched on and, and comparing mm -hmm. contexts across democracies and authoritarian regimes, uh, across Asian countries from North America to Europe to, to Australia. I mean, how do you see Australia in that sense? Do you see Australia, the Australian scene in a, in a fresh light because of that broader comparison? Not necessarily. I guess I, always, I was always aware of a kind of exceptionalism in Australia, partly geographic, um, but also historical. And so I, I guess what, what I learned was more, more about the kind of proliferation of diversity, the fundamental diversity of, of the various contexts that, that I worked in and, uh, and that I was introduced to by people I was working with. So it, it, it probably did that. It reinforced and provided some kind of detail for what I, I guess I assumed to be the case. I mean, often we found, uh, particularly when I was working with Anna Pertiera in the Federation Fellow Project, we often found things turned out to be a little different to what we'd expected. Um, you know, in, in Mexico in particular, we found that. But there was all, always that sense that it was not going to work out the same way everywhere. And, and the narratives of, of media change that had come from the US primarily, that assumed a kind of global you know, queue of people waiting to become just like the Americans. Never bought that. I always thought that was wrong. And the research certainly demonstrated that was the case very convincingly. I mean, how was it to, to revisit work from a decade, from a number of different projects, uh, from, from here, and look at those pieces together? Did it make you kind of reevaluate the whole kind of research? Yeah, actually, it's a pretty interesting thing to do. I mean, you know, people always talk about going back to their own work and either being, uh, being alarmed by it and thinking, oh, my God, that's terrible, or else... Uh, or, th or else thinking, oh God, I couldn't do that now. That's <laughs> the kind of thing I can do now. I, I guess that was kind of my feeling that I went back. It, it, it's a bit like reading somebody else who you really agree with. You know, <laughs> you go, yeah, that's that's right. But I can also see the repetition of, of, of concerns just keep coming up as you go through and um, and remind you of how. You know, how little you knew at particular points in time and how things have changed and how you needed to observe those changes and, and accommodate them accordingly in what you were thinking. So it's been a really interesting experience going back over the material and seeing, a, you know, a kind of intellectual trajectory over, over a decade or so that's been a decade of, of pretty dynamic change. So that's, it's been an interesting thing to, to engage in. And so having, having taken stock of that, do you think this is the moment then to set an agenda in media and cultural studies going forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the last essay in the book is, is kind of aiming at that, I think. That, but, but it is pretty much what we've been talking about, the need to recover the critical imperative at a fundamental point of media studies. That, that you know, There's a kind of implicit argument, argument that we've been trapped into being too descriptive. Now we need to be much more critical and to undertake that as being what it is we do. And so that, that's the message. The other message, though, was specifically about media and cultural studies, where I think cultural studies has become, uh, I think, far too arcane and too elite in, in the way it's developed in recent years. I think theoretical clarification and development has been extraordinary, the amount of activity going on. But I also think it's taken us into a lot of niche areas which is fine for those niche areas, but you know it's it's lost that kind of broad public engagement that it had when it started. 
You know, nobody would accuse Stuart Hall's work of being niche <laughs> or the work coming out of that centre being niche. But I think a lot of the work that's being undertaken now it is like that. I mean, partly that's driven by the need to get research funding. You have to find these gaps in the field, etc. And partly it's, you know, people are free to follow their own interests and, you know, I'd be the last one to criticise them for doing that. But I think cultural studies could learn actually from media studies a bit more about, you know, how to undertake a public role. And I think media studies, you know, despite what I've been saying about it losing its critical edge, I think it has had um, a better career in that area in the last decade or so than cultural studies. But I think what cultural studies can do uh, is provide methods and theoretical frameworks and so on where, you know, the sophistication of cultural studies is, is staggering now compared to where it was when I started in the field. And I think that media studies can benefit a lot from collaborating with cultural studies for that reason. So joining together that kind of work in the public front line and the empirical knowledge with, with some of this kind of theoretical development yeah. to help us kind of yeah. get um, the grips with the, with the object that we're dealing with. One of the things I really like about this book is that not only are you flagging the kind of concerns that are coming up you know, consistently and the issues that are being raised, which are big issues if, we, if we're talking about power and democracy but at the same time there's a very um, you know pragmatic tone that there are things that should be done and things that we can do you know and that's a, that's I think a really important message to be able to take away you know we may not be well-placed institutionally in some respects uh, or in resources or, or the means at the time but there is at least a clear sense of what it is we should be doing yeah and I think in, in universities I think in recent years we've, we've lost we've lost a sense of how much power we actually have I think people got worn down, you know, by change and by the lack of political support, I suppose. And so they forgot that they actually do have more power. You know, the example I always go to is, is all the um, the performance indicators that the universities have now introduced, many of which are ludicrous and many of which are used to bully staff and uh, distract junior staff in ways that are very unproductive. They don't work if people don't cooperate. You know, if you don't supply that information, they don't work. And yet nowhere has that been suggested that I'm aware of, that um, really it's about time people said, no, we're not going to do this. But they don't feel they have the power. And now, you know, with the kind of crisis that the universities are in, I think that's probably going to even be worse. But it does seem to me that, that within the school or within the faculty, people have a lot more power than they think. And they, they should at least test the limits of that. Make the university prove that they have no power. By contesting it. If we think back then uh, you know, a, a little to when you began in media and cultural studies, I mean this was an, an area which was exciting to undergrad students uh, that was allowing them to kind of deal with issues in the here and now and in their own lives uh, and they enrolled in, in, in large numbers. I mean do you think in the present situation there's some you know, cause for optimism when it comes to engaging with the upcoming generation on the kind of issues that you've been talking about? Yeah I think that that's that's what digital media has done, I think, that, that really that's got to be the, the place where we engage with that generation, I think. I and mean, certainly, you know, when cultural studies started, it was fantastic. You know, students were so relieved to be actually addressed about their own culture in ways that didn't, didn't denigrate it or refuse to understand that it might actually generate, generate something meaningful. So I think, you know, that's a long way back. So we've gone way past that now. You know, that's not an issue now. But I think... 
there is still the issue of, of attempting to get students to understand the importance of understanding how power operates. But I think digital media is the place where that can be done because they're actually at the coalface of that and they do understand you know, some of the ways in which that works and I see around them some of the ways in which that works. That's the place where I'd see real potential for the future for developing programs in those areas that build on, you know, they're not ignorant of the media studies past, but build on what we've learned from previous industry formations uh, in order to talk about how they operate now. And often you do that by talking about how they're similar rather than how they're different. So we find ourselves still on the road to renewal in that sense. Yes. Yes, we do. It's been a long road. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's true. It's, uh, it is that Stuart Hall road to renewal that, um, that we're on. I mean, I think... I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of um, really good work being done in the field and um, really challenging and interesting work and some of the things that I've been saying about what needs to be done, there are plenty of people out there who would listen to this and say, we're doing that already, and I think that's great. But it's, um, it's, it's, it's made difficult, I think, by the way in which the universities have mutated over, over the years and, and the role of humanities disciplines in particular has had to be continually defended not as a, as a series of, of interventions, but as a kind of constitutive role for the humanities. It has to defend itself always already. It always has to be done. And I think that, you know, that wears people down and it's, it's hard to maintain and they need, uh, they need help to keep that going. But still, there's a lot of optimism in this book about the, an excitement about the kind of work that's happening in, in television studies, for example, yeah. and in other areas. So you have no sense that we have, um, you know, sort of completed a, a mission or, you know, or run to the end of a paradigm. Really, the horizon seems to be opening up. In, in yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. You, I mean, you go to the big conferences. I always go to the, the Society for Center and Media Studies conference when I can. And you, you hear what, what particularly the younger scholars doing there is just fantastic. There's so much good work being done. Hard to, to see how they get it supported sometimes uh, financially, but there's a lot of good work being done, a lot of really good people in the field. I mean, is this book then you know, fundamentally a springboard um, for them? That would be good if that's how it worked, yeah. Probably not going to be a springboard for me. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not a lot of spring left in me. But it'd be good if, if, that, if that was seen as something that people um, got from it, yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time, Graham. It's been fantastic to talk to you.